0: Hey, here's a quick word about our presenting sponsor, Wagoner Financial. It doesn't matter where you are in your mindset as far as planning for your future. Or what stage of your life. Or what stage of your life. Talk to the folks uh, at Wagoner Financial. I'll tell you what, Eric, Kylie, Nancy, Alex, Catherine, they're uh, all uh, fantastic yeah, they, they people. they got a pretty sharp crew. Yeah, here. and they got bright smile from Barb when you walk into the door. Absolutely. I'd see your folks at uh, Wagoner Financial or give them a call. They'll help you out and, and set you up for your future. wagoner financialcom Welcome back to Taking the Next Level on the Crawford Podcasting Network. Tom Crawford, my partner in crime. And we've got kind of a milestone episode, Tom. Episode number 10. Hey, double digits, man. We must be doing something right, Lou. The measure of us doing something right is the type of guests we get. And we have a really great guest today. Her name is Amber Naslin. She is LinkedIn right now. I believe uh, her title is uh, content strategist. Is that correct, Amber? You
1: know, it changes on the daily, but it's close enough for government work. I I think it works (laughs) fine to me.
0: Okay. And we're really excited to talk to you, Amber, because Tom and I both are uh, avid uh, LinkedIn users. Um, We're avid about... uh,
2: It's it's the greatest platform there is for, I call it grown-up people. You know, business to business. You know, I, it's just the perfect platform for me.
1: Well, awesome. You're hired. Um, <laughs> great. <laughs> Thank you.
0: A lot of things that we want to talk about. We want to talk about um, the state of social media, uh, a lot of stuff that you talk about from a social media standpoint as far as uh, data and metrics. But then, um, you know, we really want to switch the uh, the topics around and talk about a lot of the things that you talk about on uh, the speaking circuit because you're a highly sought after speaker From and uh, I've listened to some of your uh, speaking engagements prior and uh, I'm really interested in talking to you about this thing that, that's uh, known as uh, imposter syndrome and how you talk about it and so before we get into that give us your 90 second elevator pitch on who amber is
1: well i'm a 20 something year marketer and i've always had a bit of an emphasis on digital from the very beginning i've always been interested since the internet showed up in the world i've always been interested in how it impacts our work as communicators so i do a lot of that um, like you said i'm currently with linkedin but i've spent the last I don't know, 10, 15 years with technology companies, mostly in the B2B world. And prior to that, I did some stints in other corporate marketing roles, even in nonprofits for a while. And when I'm not working, I'm a mom to a teenage girl, which is super fun. And I ride horses and I rescue pit bulls. Never a dull moment in my world, for sure.
0: And you've had quite uh, quite a career journey as well. Because if I understand correctly, you were with a uh, company that is that was known as Radiant 6. It was a social listening data metric tool, correct? That's correct. Yep. yep.
1: I was actually, um, gosh, I think I was in the 30s or 40s in terms of employees there. And I originally started out just sort of developing, helping them develop content on a on a contract basis. And that eventually led to a full-time role, which was super fun. And I was there all the way through the acquisition uh, by Salesforce.com. And yeah, it was a super fun ride. I loved being part of that organization. A lot of those people are still very good friends.
2: You know, Amber, I'm curious, what's it like at LinkedIn? Where's the headquartered? And what are the jobs and what are the people doing? And just kind of give us an overview of the setting if you could.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, that's a a big question, but um, we have offices all over the globe, really. Our headquarters is sort of split between we have technology headquarters in Sunnyvale, California, and we have a, uh, a large corporate office in San Francisco. So like a lot of tech companies, we're very much present in Silicon Valley. Um, we have 17,000 employees globally. And here in Chicago, where I'm based, we have, uh, we're, I think we're creeping up on about a thousand here in Chicago. Wow. And we have a pretty big office in New York, as well as some very exciting growth offices in. Let's see, in Detroit, in Omaha. So yeah, like it, LinkedIn is on crazy enough, still on growth trajectory after all these years. Um, oh my God. So yeah, we've got offices in all across the world, really. It's, a, it's an exciting place to be. And as you can imagine, it's a very energizing environment. Lots of kind of tech nerds and fun people around. We have a really robust culture uh, of very entrepreneurial, forward-thinking people. And I think that comes from the chop. Jeff Wiener, our CEO is someone I respect and admire a great deal. And I think he's done a a pretty spectacular job of leading and growing LinkedIn as an organization, even when I was watching from the sidelines as a customer. So yeah, it's a fun place to be. I can't, I, I really can't complain.
0: Being on LinkedIn right now and kind of helping people through a content strategy amongst other things. And uh, I know you had just spoken at a conference regarding uh, data measurement and social media metrics. And I noticed that you talk about something that I don't think enough people talk about, it, and that's the the proper metrics to track at each point of a sales funnel. Can you go into that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, you know, I get asked a lot about measuring, um, you know, social media and, of course, digital marketing more broadly. And the hard thing is that everybody wants to know what they should be tracking. the The problem is that it's very dependent on the goals and objectives of the organization. You know, a younger growing company might really care about brand awareness. And those are the sorts of things that they need to be tracking and measuring pretty carefully. Um, more established and mature companies might be looking at more bottom of the funnel and um, lead gen or conversion related content, or in the case of B2C, you know, direct um, conversion stuff. But the thing that's really important to talk about in a digital world is that, that whole ecosystem has to work together. So you can't just do brand or conversion or activation content, you really need to do all of the above because in a digital 24-7, 365 kind of world, you never really know where somebody is in their journey with you. So that means that your digital presence has to cover the entire funnel at all times so that whoever is interacting with your brand can find what they need when they need it. Um, And so as a result, we have to be measuring a little bit across the entire funnel so paying attention to what people are saying how they're talking about us whether we're growing our audience and our reach um, whether people are engaging with the content that we put online and how they're interacting with our brand to give us signals about what they find valuable or not Um, and then of course whether we're actually inspiring them to take some sort of an action Um, even if it's not a sale per se it's are they doing something that really connects them with our company in a meaningful way. So whether that's subscribing for say, like opting into an email list or something more meaningful, like becoming um, an active lead in our sales cycle, there are so many ways to track and measure those things. But I guess my counsel is usually pick two or three of the best metrics at each Important stage of that journey for your customers and track those.
2: You know, Amber, I I'm, I I could be an ambassador for LinkedIn, and I and I'm just not blowing smoke here. I I because I, I have over two thousand contacts, and I engage with a lot of people. I ask people's opinion. I ask them to help me, you know, and things like that. So when I talk to young people starting out with a company and say, "Hey, you need to get involved in LinkedIn," and they always ask me, "Well, why? What do I what, what do I get out of that?" And I always say, kind of not not try to sell your company. But just basically inform people. I almost call it infotainment. You inform people and entertaining, and make it engaging. They'll then they'll kind of follow you and 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 and, and get excited about what your product or services are. I mean, am I right on with that, or are there other things that they should be doing?
1: No, I think you're right on. I think, as I say, with most of these channels, especially LinkedIn, um, you have to give more than you get. So the idea is to yeah. show up and really participate in the community and be part of conversations and dialogue and create content of your own and share your knowledge and share your expertise because it's a slow burn um it's a thing that builds momentum over time and you know i get a lot of people who are like oh gosh i should really i really could use some business from linkedin i should really get on there Uh, but the thing is it's not an overnight proposition, you can't just add water and suddenly people will show up to to work with you. You have to really invest in the platform um, before you take any withdrawals, as, as you would say. So um, I really encourage there's a place for everybody on LinkedIn, really. And I, I encourage everybody to even if you're not comfortable creating your own content, just engaging in dialogue with people on their content or content that comes across the feed and using it as a mechanism to have great conversations with really smart professionals is an easy place for anyone to start, but there's a huge, huge amount of value in LinkedIn. These days, you know, we have our, our legacy and our DNA is kind of in a job and careers platform, but really we've become quite a, an active hub for business related content. So there's a lot of really great activity happening at any given time, uh, whether you want to learn or debate or create and, and, Put some ideas of your own out into the universe. uh, There really is a place for
0: everybody. I I do feel that LinkedIn has become much more of a true social network than it had before. I think, as is the case with... uh you know, even a a face to face kind of business event where people are kind of hesitant to to mingle and talk talk to each other. LinkedIn has had kind of um, started out that way too, where professionals were kind of um, circling each other and trying to see what was uh, what was kosher and what was not. W- would you say that's accurate?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've seen a lot of comments over the years about what's appropriate for LinkedIn and what's not. You know, this isn't <laughs> Facebook or what you know, like what belongs on LinkedIn. And I think those kind of arbitrary rules are actually kind of silly because the community really polices itself. Um, I think you will find that content on LinkedIn. People come to LinkedIn, and we know from our own research that that people come to LinkedIn with a purpose um, more so than they do other social networks. So they show up on LinkedIn ready and eager to learn, to um, expand their base of knowledge, to connect with other like-minded professionals. They're there for a reason. So I do think that. They're looking for content with substance. And so I think it's less about the topic and more about does that member on LinkedIn really find value, whether that's relevance or interest or education or even inspiration. I think, you know, there's definitely a place on linkedin for content that's a little bit more emotional in nature a little bit more inspirational um a little bit of the softer side of business because after all we're all humans on the other side of this so it's a it's a really mixed bag, and I've seen some really diverse content on LinkedIn do really well. But to your point, I do think I think it's evolved a lot from what people may have thought or or known of LinkedIn even five or six years ago.
2: So amber, I mean what what is the the scoreboard metric? okay? so when you you make a post and I, you know we're at, everybody's kind of in, oh, how many likes did you get like uh, or, or retweets, you know whatever likes on Facebook, retweets on on Twitter. But in, 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 in terms of LinkedIn, is it when you look at the number of people who have viewed your post or seen your video, is that your scoreboard metric or should you be looking beyond that?
1: Well, I, again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier more broadly in measurement. It really depends on what you're on LinkedIn for. So things like likes or comments or shares are what I call indicators of interest. So that usually means that somebody is not only seeing your content, but they're paying attention in some way. But we have to be real about the fact that somebody liking or commenting on a post is by no means um, a wedding proposal. You know, it's just, it's a passing click. Um, So I think for me, for instance, my personal presence on LinkedIn I do value things like how many, with the growth in my audience, how many people choose to follow my content, um, whether people are engaging with it. And LinkedIn, especially our algorithm really looks at content that's creating conversation and dialogue. So it's less about whether it's a video or an article, it's less about do a bunch of random people like it, is it creating relevant dialogue amongst the network? You know around you that's an indicator of success so to me it's hard to track on a spreadsheet but the notes i get from people saying gosh i really needed to read that article today or wow that post really taught me something i didn't know before or it made me think of something in a new way those are the kinds of things i find value in now if, if i'm a commercial customer of linkedin we have a lot of customers who are Doing paid advertising on LinkedIn to either increase their brand awareness or to drive specific leads. So those measures are going to vary based on what your individual or business objectives are. Uh, But the great thing is that no matter where you are in that process, there is a way to... Define and track your success on LinkedIn. It just really depends on what you're here for.
0: What would you tell a potential advertiser for LinkedIn who has a belief that they don't want to get started or make an investment in LinkedIn because just along the long-term effort is just going to be too costly?
1: Well, I would say that it, the the long-term effort on anything meaningful is costly in a business sense. Um,
0: well, that's a really great there. Point. there's
1: no there's no such thing as a free lunch on the internet and there's no such thing as a free yeah. lunch in marketing. And there's no such thing as instant success. I mean, a lot of people will say, "Oh gosh, well, I can throw some money at Facebook ads and I get a whole bunch of clicks and it's like, right, but is that your audience? Is that a qualified audience for you? Because the thing that we are really outstanding at, at LinkedIn is the caliber and quality of our audience, um, how well qualified they are for business conversations. And as a result, does that require more of an investment from you? Absolutely. The bar is higher because the content's gotta be good. And the audience comes with, like I said, some pretty clear expectations for looking for value in the content they get here but it doesn't get less expensive the longer you wait. (laughs) So building a brand on any digital platform is a long-term investment and it it costs more in the initial stages to ramp up your brand. Um, The ones who are seeing really great economical value long-term are the ones who laid that groundwork a year, two, three years ago. So the, over time, um, your audience returns that value to you, but it's not going to get any less expensive if you wait.
2: You know, Amber, r- I just want to interject one more question about um, about the audience, Luke, uh, 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 you know, or, or the purpose rather of LinkedIn. When I got involved with LinkedIn, probably, I don't know, probably going on 10 years now or not eight or nine years, whatever. It was like, oh, you got to go to LinkedIn to try to job network. And that was actually okay. one of the drop downs. And but boy, when when I've thought when I've looked at and I'm on LinkedIn every day, it's so much beyond that, isn't it, Amber, as far as the involvement from maybe that was one of its core strengths and now it's expanded way beyond that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I do think that, that you know, when when Reed Hoffman and the original founders of LinkedIn put this network together, the idea was to connect the world's professionals, right? To to tap into the the opportunities in our careers through our individual and professional network and more broadly if you look at linkedin's vision statement today our vision is pretty audacious it's to create economic opportunity for every member of the world's workforce and so that means not just white-collar professionals not just blue-collar professionals but every member of the world's workforce and we create that kind of economic opportunity, not just through jobs and careers, but through learning and education and peer connections and individual and personal development. So all of those things have a lot to do with how we create value for individuals and for businesses. So it's not just about jobs. I mean, that's that's always, I think, gonna be a core part of our DNA. Yeah. Um, but LinkedIn, we have our sights set on something pretty big and, We don't do that just through jobs. There's a number of ways and paths that we have to use to get there. So um, yeah, it's far more than careers these days.
0: So going back to a a question that Time had earlier, Amber, if you were talking to young people who wanted to work at one of the major tech companies, how Mm -hmm. is LinkedIn uh, different from say a, a Facebook? You
1: know, it's hard to say. I've never worked in I've never worked for Facebook or for Twitter, so I can't speak to their environment, but I can tell you that what LinkedIn values in our culture is very much a growth mindset. You know, we we really appreciate and reward continuous learners here, and the idea that you can roll your sleeves up and dig into something and figure it out as you build it um, as opposed to waiting for permission or waiting for instructions. Like we really value people who can move quickly, learn on the fly and have a really great attitude about that while they're doing it. And I think the one mistake that young professionals make when they want to break into the tech sector is they worry about the technology, but the tech itself always changes they're, You know, Twitter eventually will go away. Facebook will go away. Maybe even LinkedIn will go away. The technology itself is not at issue, I think what's really important is to keep your eye on how technology is changing business and giving yourself a well-rounded skill set of, do you understand the world of marketing? Do you understand how sales drives an organization? Do you understand the basic financial metrics that make a company viable and profitable? Do you understand what it's like to hire and retain talent? So having a really well-rounded skill set from a business perspective is super valuable in a world where the mechanics of the tech are changing at lightning speed. The thing that keeps you relevant is your willingness and ability to stay hungry and stay learning um, and never rest on your laurels because uh, it's always gonna change.
2: You know, Amber, I, I work with a lot of small businesses, um, you know, as a marketing consultant, and, and they always say, "Yeah, my yeah, my my younger people say I got to get involved in that social media stuff," and and they're they're totally clueless, and and it's hard to even explain it to them. They want this, you know, this nutshell answer about what social media will do to to market their business. But I mean, how what's the percentage of people that? I mean, you're probably barely scratching the surface as far as getting people up to speed on on social media technology. Isn't the line share of people kind of oblivious, even in the business world, to what LinkedIn and other platforms can do for their business?
1: I, I don't know that I'd use the word oblivious. I think in, in any kind of technological or cultural revolution, which I think social media really is, it's something that, you know the generation before me and i i have a foot squarely in the pre-internet era because i'm gen x so i'm pre-internet era and post-internet era oh wow okay what that's like to like have life before the internet and now have seen how much that that has changed business but with any kind of upheaval like that in a, either cultural or business sense you have a, an adoption curve and there are some people who are always going to be on the leading edge of that and want to stick their neck out and take risks and figure out um how they can have that first mover advantage by taking advantage of the newest thing on the block and then you have kind of the mass in the middle of people who wait for a few people on the front lines to go prove that it's okay and that it's safe and then they follow along and then there's always some late adopters who are skeptical or intimidated or for whatever reason they're just later to the party and I don't create character judgments out of that. I, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of hype in the social media world. of Like, oh my God, you're going to be left behind. And I mean, I think there is, there's an urgency in the sense that any business is able to be disrupted and it taking in, uh, taking that for granted and dangerous for any organization. But I do think that there is still a place in the world for people to be learning about this. And I think we can make a big mistake by being like, what's the matter with you? Why haven't you done this yet? Um, and instead, I think our job as people who are more connected to these things is to still make it accessible, understandable, and less intimidating for the people who haven't quite got on the train yet. I think that's up to us. And, you know, you could, you, obviously you can't force people to adopt things. You can only lead the horse to water. But I do think right. that there's, um, an important role that we have to play to show people that not only is social media important, but why it's important. Because again, people get hung, hung up on whether it's Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or Instagram, and the tools will always change. But if we can teach people how to instead be thinking in a consumer driven world that is always on and needs a backbone of really great content to keep people engaged and understanding who you stand for as a brand. Then it doesn't matter if it's Twitter or Instagram or something that hasn't been invented yet, um, because the philosophy still stays the same.
0: Tom, have you have you heard of TikTok yet? Oh
2: yeah, yeah, I've heard of TikTok. I, I equate it to young people. I guess that's that's
0: my reaction to. It. Is that true? Yeah, somewhat. I think that's the main audience right now. Is is that true, Amber?
1: Yeah, I think it. I think it skews for sure a little bit younger. Um, their demographics are. More um, Gen Z, I guess. If you're going to make a generalization, right. for instance, my soon-to-be 13-year-old daughter and a lot of her friends are really into TikTok and Snapchat and some of these kind of real-time platforms. Um, it's not to say that there aren't exceptions, but that generally, I think it's used younger.
0: Right. Uh, how How is TikTok different from Vine's um, short video by uh, by Twitter?
1: You know, I actually think they're very similar, um, and in some ways, I feel like somebody at Twitter is probably kicking themselves for killing off Vine. <laughs> Um, because TikTok (laughs) is really like the second coming of Vine, uh, built in, in Asia and it just, it took the world by storm. The kids love it. These short form videos. And so they're not, they're not really fundamentally different in their mechanics, but the platform and the culture that has emerged on TikTok, I think is a much Larger and fast growth one than Vine ever was.
0: And so, Tom, I don't know if you're familiar with Vine, but it's basically uh, very similar, as Amber was saying, to uh, to TikTok right now. And I think that Twitter was somewhat prescient in um, in creating Vine and in understanding how people wanted to create create content. Maybe not at that point, but definitely in the future. And so, as the lead-in uh, to my next question, Amber, where do you think what's the next thing for social media and, and for the internet?
1: Oh boy, this you know, I get asked this question a lot and I hate it. <laughs> um and it's not like it's not you. I it, it's not you personally. I because I'm not the per, I'm not good at this. Um it's I'm not a predictor, I'm not a futurist, I'm I'm actually really good at a at a I'm at the present and helping people figure out how to maneuver in what exists today. But I do think one trend that i've noticed that i think is worth taking note of that i think is already starting to happen is where social media started was these massive public platforms for um that were kind of not very discerning about community or discourse or groups of like-minded people and i do think that social media is already starting to go private again you're seeing a resurgence in facebook groups um, you we're seeing a resurgence and we're retooling LinkedIn groups right now because people are looking for more curated experiences that are not fire hoses of information and that are not necessarily open to every Tom, Dick and Harry or Jane, Judy and, you know, person on the Internet to come in and have commentary. So they're looking for more intimate dialogue, more topic based stuff and communities where they can actually form Lasting and deeper connections rather than fleeting ones. So, I don't know what the next platform is going to look like, but I do think that there's going to be a core component of community to that. You know, the guys who founded Wikipedia are already putting out something called W2 Social or Wiki Tribune Social that is their attempt at sort of retooling what social networks look like. Um, and TBD, whether that goes anywhere or not, there have been a few, you know, contenders over the years that have tried to pop up and Take market share away from the core social platforms, but I think community is going to be a core component of it, whatever that looks like.
2: You know, Amber, I come from the media world, and right now there is a really distinctive content competition going on. That all everybody's blogging, they're doing video blogs, they're they're you know they're doing snippets here and there, and you got all these platforms we talked about, and it's almost like to the consumer it's like sensory overload. I mean, how do you? separate yourself from all this content competition whether it's in media trying to get somebody to, to read your article or hear or see your video or just on linkedin and trying to be an expert on something i mean how do you differentiate yourself
1: it's a great question when i get asked often and i'll try to boil it down to a couple of simple concepts i guess um one is consistency i think that really it's underrated in terms of its importance to creating platform or creating authority where people are actually going to stop and listen to what you have to say. Because a lot of mm-hmm. people get caught up in a flurry of want to create content and they expect the audience to just pop up and show up. And they, it's not how right. it works. So yeah. you have to show up consistently every day, every week, every month. And again, not necessarily creating reams and mountains of content, but being a functioning and contributing member of that community. And that takes work and effort. If you're a blogger, you've got to keep writing. If you're a video person, you've got to keep producing. If you're uh, a photographer, you've got to keep taking pictures. Like all of those things require you to keep showing up. So consistency is really important. And that consistency over time demonstrates a level of commitment to your community. Where eventually people are like wow he's just like he's just he's always here he's super reliable you know she's always contributing something of value to the community that's what creates influence over time um the other thing is making sure that you have a solid niche and that doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be obscure um you know people who you know knit purple hats on the backs of unicorns i mean like that's kind of crazy niche, <laughs> but, but in general <laughs> i call it white space like understanding what you can uniquely talk about in a way that is unique to you because nobody wants to be creating me too content you know and people aren't looking for more of the stuff that they've already seen or already know they want fresh they want a different take they want something a little bit interesting so you've got to find that that space where there's a lot of demand from your audience or a lot of interest but not a lot of meaningful substantive content And that's an iterative process. It takes some time to find. But when you do it, um, it pays big dividends in the long run.
0: Yeah, that's a a really interesting take on that. Because I think, um, um, and I agree with you, the onus on content creators is just to to get it out there and just see what sticks. And I think that for, I don't know, maybe um, spitballing, like 75 to maybe even like 85% of people who can just be... Consistent in getting content out there um, is almost good enough. And then where you start to distinguish yourself is what you, what you were talking about is, you know, actually having really interesting content that's maybe new or a new take or or even, uh, quite honestly, like having an opinion, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's having a strong point of view or the willingness to even put that out there and debate or dialogue or talk to people Uh, You know, I'm not always a thousand percent confident I'm right about the things I put out there. My goal is to create conversation and hopefully learn something through that. But you have to have a point of view because I can Google things factually, but people who help me think differently or shape my perception about things or give me provocative, interesting ways to think about things are the voices I come back to uh, time and time again because they break me out of my my own um, little box that I live in, and they're giving me more than just the facts. They're giving me facts and ways to think about those facts that help keep me sharp.
2: Well, it's also being, it's also being concise, Amber. I mean, because, you know, everybody's kind of got it, kind of some element of ADD. There are, there's, there's so much going on. You're being pulled in all these directions. Do you have to keep things short and to the point because you only have so many minutes of, of their attention span?
1: Nope, that's a myth. And I I think about that a lot because like, you know, people, I hear the myth about like, everybody's got the attention span of a goldfish and like, we just don't (laughs) have time to catch people's attention. But if you've ever sat down and binge watched an entire season of game of Thrones over two days on a weekend, um, you know, we have plenty of attention. It's just a question on where we want to spend it. So I don't believe everything has to be short and concise. I think there's, plenty of room for substantive, longer form content. If that's what your audience is looking for from you, again, it goes back to really understanding your audience and what resonates with them and making sure that you are trying to convey value and substance over anything else, because you can sometimes do that in 30 seconds, but sometimes you need 30 minutes. And I think both of those are okay. And I see, Content on both sides of that spectrum perform exceedingly well as long as it's centered on the audience and their needs and their interests. Um but the attention span thing is a myth. We've got we've got plenty of attention to spend. We are just competing for that attention with a lot of other entities. So our content has got to be really great.
0: Really well said, Amber. I, I really enjoyed everything you said yeah. in that in that last statement. That's that's fantastic. Um because I think I think it's right, you know, Tommy, that it's really about um, proper context and understanding your audience, as Amber, Amber said.
2: Yeah, and there's there's a, a, a great example dovetailing off that, Amber, is a, there's a sports media platform called The Athletic, which is a paid subscription thing, and it's long articles, and everybody would say, oh, no, they, people aren't going to spend time reading these long articles. Well, they're or, they're written by high-caliber journalists, and people are reading it. They're taking the time, so it, that basically endorses your point right there. It nails it, Target, right on.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Amber, I want to get back to talking about you. We glossed over a little bit of your um, your career um, path and your journey. So, what did you do after Radiant Six? I believe you uh, owned your own company for a bit.
1: I did. I owned um, I owned a consultancy called Sidera Works, and we focused a lot on digital business transformation and you know the adoption of a lot of these technologies and how that impacts the culture and operational side of our marketing organizations so I did that for a few
0: years yeah and that's really um, that's that's really great and, and one of the things that I want to I want to get your um, your story on is during this period is um, where you learned a lot about um, yourself and about about being a successful business person or in, in, in this case I uh, you had some failures that you learned from and and how it kind of shaped a lot of the things that you talk about now on this on the speaking circuit
1: um, yeah that's so A lot of people think entrepreneurship is super glamorous and is, you know, the road to riches. And there's a lot of hype on the internet about, you know, start your own business and then never work for somebody again. And, you know, you'll make millions and all that stuff. Um, running business is hard. Uh, building a business is very hard. And, you know, I won't go into all the like the nitty gritty details, but the upshot was after three and a half, four years, um, that business failed. And we, my partner and I, um, dissolved the business. And I walked away from it with some pretty tough lessons about what it takes to build and run a business. And it was really hard for me personally, because I had a lot of my own um, personal uh, financial resources wrapped up in that business. And that's a hard road to home. You know, no, any, anybody who's been there, I'll tell you how painful it is to spend a lot of years working really hard and saving your money and investing it in something you believe in and losing it but it's taught me a lot about resilience and it's taught me a lot about what i am capable of it's also taught me about the things that i don't want to do in the future um decisions i wouldn't make again or choices that i think i would have made differently had i had it to do over again so I, i'm fond of saying that like there's lots of painful lessons we learn, but all of them teach us something. And the, that one for sure taught me plenty. Uh, so I'd like to think I'm a little bit of wiser for the journey.
2: You know, Amber, uh, yeah, Luke was, Luke was telling me about the, your speaking part of your career and, 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 and how that's, you know, helped you a great deal build your business. I'm just a huge proponent of the power of the podium. I hired uh, motivational speakers and content speakers and can you tell us, uh, you know, how that's impacted your business, and and uh, obviously the plus side. Even though a lot of people don't like to give speeches, boy, there's a lot of, uh, you know, benefit from doing that. Is there not?
1: Well, speaking is. I'm I'm at home on stage. I think um, the everybody has to kind of find the thing that is like when they're in their element, and for me. Being in front of a room, speaking and teaching, whether it's a small group, uh, like I did last week of about 30 executives, or it's rooms of thousands of people, I think I find my flow when I'm in that mode. So that for sure has been a really important part of my career. And it's where I'm my happiest. It's the thing I'm most passionate about. And the thing that's amazing about my role at LinkedIn is that's basically what I do for a living. You know, like I teach, I give workshops, I go... speeches at industry conferences and it's a dream come true in a lot of ways because it really plays to my strengths but speaking for me has been one of the most powerful ways that i have not only built business and my platform and my personal platform for you know writing books and working with like all sorts of different businesses over the years but it's also given me the opportunity to earn the platform to talk about things that are also really personally important to me like i did a tedx talk on mental health and and how important that is to me Um, I'm working right now on a project that's centered around imposter syndrome and what the digital world has done to us around self-doubt and confidence and our own mental health balance that we're constantly having to strike. So speaking has given me an avenue for exploring those ideas, and I'm so grateful for that because it really is something I love to do, and it's become a very core part of how I work.
0: Tom talks a lot about the impact of um, social media on on young people and their perceptions of themselves and and uh, this kind of a, a greater negativity that that runs people down. Amber, you talk about it. Um, you you mentioned it, imposter syndrome, and it's something that mm-hmm. um, uh, until I um, I came across you, I wasn't aware of that term. And then as I mm. as I list, listen to some of your your speeches, you know, it, it became more evident of what it was, and I recognize that it is definitely something that's not a new concept. Um, And it's just, it's amazing because even um, as recently as last week, I believe a the Hollywood Reporter had this um, great interview with a bunch of actresses who basically said that they every major role that they take they suffer from uh, imposter syndrome. The, the The list of women uh, who they interviewed was Scarlett Johansson and uh, Jennifer Lopez and pretty much a who's who of, of Hollywood actresses, all saying that this is a real thing. I think Renee Zellweger was in that was in that interview. How how did you come across and how did you start? Um, identifying this um, as a thing, as a thing that maybe you were going through and, um, and wanting to be motivated and courageous enough to talk about it.
1: Yeah, well, I'm a big proponent of uh, therapy, and I've been going <laughs> to therapy on and off for most of my life. And the, I, the concept of imposter syndrome, I actually don't remember where I stumbled upon it, but I have a feeling it probably stemmed from some of my work in therapy, because self-doubt is a thing that has plagued me for a number of years and it turns out that it's, it's a thing that's very prevalent among high achiever populations. So people who are largely successful tend to feel this and if you think about it, like you can't, people who aren't successful probably don't, don't feel the same degree of pressure to keep up um, the success that they've had. So there's this kind of vicious cycle of you accomplish more and you doubt how you got there and you wonder if you've just been faking it all along and sooner or later somebody's going to find out that you're just a total fraud and that they that you've been you know making it up as you go <laughs> and they're they're going to call you out on it and so many people feel that way and the reality is we're all making it up as we go uh, but it was a really it was a, a pivotal moment when i realized not only that that was a a thing that a lot of people experience and academically. Like this is researched. This is not just like a pop psych term. This is real stuff. Right, right. Um, but also that now that our digital world has, you know, we've always compared ourselves maybe to our neighbor with the flashier car or the kid in school who got better grades or the, the kid in school who dressed better or was prettier or dated somebody that we wanted to be dating now we have the opportunity to not just compare ourselves to the person down the street, but to every single stranger on the internet. And that really messes with our idea of what normal is, what success should look like because we're seeing lots of pretty filtered versions of, you know, the cliche goes, um, that's people's highlight reel, but you don't see the mess behind the scenes because we're also careful about crafting this very, polished um persona online that we don't see the stuff behind it that can at times be really really messy i mean think about the times where we've had even celebrities suicides in the news and people are like oh my god but he seems so happy and he just posted a picture yesterday of him smiling like we just don't know what's really happening in people's worlds, and i think we have to be really careful in this hyper connected world that we are not fueling our own self-doubt by falling into that comparison trap over and over and over again.
2: You know, Amber, I think your point about Roque, because we, we have a Hall of Fame college basketball coach in town near named Tom Izzo, who has won a national title and conference championship games and or league titles, and he thinks he's going to get fired tomorrow. I mean, that's the mentality he, he comes from. Right. and I, I think there's a uniform aspect of that. that the It's almost like the higher achievers are, are the most insecure I, I find that really strange
1: uh yeah it's actually quite proven um that that's the case and they used to think that it was more prevalent in women than men but that has since been debunked and, de- and disproved and it's just as uh apparent in the male and the male identifying population as it is in female and female identifying people and it's just it, so it's a pretty universal challenge and like i said i think the more we do and learn and know and accomplish, the more we worry that that's all built on a house of cards that could come tumbling down at any particular moment. And we're worried that our next move is gonna be the, the one that makes it all fall apart. Yeah. Um, and in reality, you know, true success is not that fragile, but it, we, we tend to think that, and we also tend to think that we are somehow the weakest link in the chain and that's that's not enough.
0: and the relationship of, of those feelings are is really really interesting because uh you know ultimately those feelings of self-doubt and those those feelings of never feeling like it's like it's enough or that you're enough are ultimately what drive these drives these successful people to be who they are right right
1: yeah well it's interesting and i've there is i guess uh i've heard that like the you know well that fuels you right i mean the 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 sense that there's always more to do but there's a very key line between fueling yourself through motivation and believing that there's always you could always be doing a little bit better and that idea of growth mindset and continuous improvement like those things are important but the difference is that when something like imposter syndrome takes hold you don't not only do you not believe the evidence you are presented like you give somebody a list of all the things they've accomplished and they will find a way to dismantle those things or yeah but and oh but here's all the reasons that that happens and it has a very toxic side because when you get to the toxic side of that not only is it not motivating but it's damaging because over time it erodes your confidence and erodes your motivation so it's a very fine line to walk but i i reject the idea that imposter syndrome is the same as being motivated by always getting better because there's a difference again it's it's like the difference between people who occasionally have a sad day and people who who experience depression Mm. those are very different things and depression is not just a bad day and like really chronic imposter syndrome and deeply seated self-doubt is not just about firing yourself up to do better. Um, it's it's some pretty entrenched internal monologues that have to get detangled over time.
0: That was a really great example that you gave there with the um, sad day versus depression. I think I think that that illustrates um, what you're talking about uh, um, maybe better than um, than we could have we could have said ourselves. So for you personally, how how do you grapple with those thoughts?
1: I have a number of things I've learned over the years to to help me and it's been a journey. I it's definitely I feel like I'm in the best place I've ever been with all of that. But it's for sure been work. One of them not no word of a lie is therapy. Sometimes we can't see the label of the jar we're in. So getting help, understand these thoughts and understand the patterns behind them and help us dismantle them I think is really healthy. And you know, we wouldn't hesitate to go to the doctor if we Need to see a dermatologist or an ear doctor or a lung doctor but we all have this stigma around getting our brains examined and i think that's a shame Uh, so therapy is a really important part of that for me as is keeping a really i would say objective inventory of the things that i have actually accomplished i call that my inventory of truths it's like without value judgment things like i published a book Whether you think it's a good book or a bad book is actually irrelevant. I did the work to do that thing and I have proof that that happened. Keeping track of the speeches I have or the great emails I get from people who came to my workshops and say it's the best one they've ever attended. I try to keep a a running list of those things because when I'm feeling deep self-doubt, I can go back and say, my opinion is very different than all of these so look at this evidence to the contrary that tends to help shake me out of those moments um and having a a, some people that i know that i can trust not to just blow sunshine up my skirt and like make me feel happy but people who are really good benevolent objective friends who can say now look this is how this went down this is what you're good at these are the things that are important to you you know i I used to want to try to be good at everything and so of course i felt like a failure but when i started to learn where my superpowers were it was a lot easier for me to like focus on those and let the rest go and that was thanks to the people around me who helped me really understand my strengths um, so it's been like a journey of a little bit of self-discovery, a little bit of external reinforcement and help, and just a lot of willingness to be real and open about it and talk about it, because God, I feel like we're all so afraid to show weakness. And the reality is we're all terrified and we're all trying to figure this out as we go. And how we heal from that sometimes is just seeing that struggle in others and being in struggle together and saying, Hey man. We're all trying to do the best we can. Um, Having a little empathy for that and knowing that nobody's got it all figured out yet. That's always been really helpful for me.
0: We're talking with Amber Naslin on Taking the Next Level. Uh, Tom, uh, some really great insights on... uh, Oh,
2: it's been incredible. Yeah, great stuff, Amber.
0: So, Amber... um, Unbelievable. if, If... People want to um, find out more about imposter syndrome and, and how you talk about it and, and see some of your past speeches. Where should they go?
1: Um, so everything you need is at AmberNaslin.com. And if you want to see the stuff specific about my imposter syndrome project that we're calling the Fraud Squad, you can go to AmberNaslin.com slash Fraud Squad. And there's a bunch there. You can sign up for the, join the Facebook group if you want. Um, there's some footage of the, the recent keynote I did on this topic. Um, but we'd absolutely love to have you as part of the community because there's a lot of us and growing and it's fun to know that you're not alone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can uh, You can be booked as a speaker. You're not booked through uh, through 2020 yet, are you? <laughs>
1: not, not quite yet, um, but I do have some information <laughs> on ambernaslin.com as well about um, speaking and uh, how to hire me. Uh, if you want to have me come do a talk at your company, I'd be happy to do that. And of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'd be foolish to not say that, but I'm <laughs> a prolific. LinkedIn person. So please feel free to um, connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn. So you can stay
0: up to date with a lot of what I'm doing uh, there as well. We had a really informative, educational, uh, enlightening conversation with you today, Amber. I'm so glad that we had you. Like I told you offline, I've, I have been personally excited to talk with you for a while. I know Tom has too. And really, absolutely really glad that you came on.
1: Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I loved right. uh, I loved all your questions. So thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you so thanks, much. Amber. And that does it for another episode of Taking It Next Level with Luke Miller and Tom Crawford. want to thank our guest Amber Naslund of LinkedIn once again. And thank you to Tom Crawford for joining us via phone this week. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can always listen to us on our Anchor FM channel and share, like, subscribe, rate our podcast. Give us that five-star rating. Thank you so much and we'll talk to you soon.